Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is definitely not the Mexico she's seen splashed across the glossy pages of her mother's travel magazines. Here, there are no turquoise bays or white sand beaches, no five-star hotels with infinity pools that disappear in the ocean. There's only monsoonal rain, the buzz of mosquitoes, and the accordion music playing from the tinny speakers at the front of the bus. In this humidity, the air is so thick with moisture, Camille feels like a wet dish rag that needs wringing out. She sits up and rolls up her long red hair into a loose knot at the top of her head. Sweat slides from the nape of her neck and down her back. Wearing shorts was another big mistake. Her legs are stuck in the plastic like someone has spilled maple syrup on the seat. Gritting her teeth, she focuses on the gaudy decal of the Virgin Mary glued to the center of the bus's windshield. Her thighs sting with pain as she slowly peels her legs from the grimy plastic. The virgin stares back at Camille, her half-eyes closed, looking more than a little disappointed. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm talking to Jessica Winters Morales, author of Lost in Oaxaca, about a piano teacher who flies to Oaxaca to locate a student who has disappeared. The piano teacher finds herself on a precarious road into the mountains, The bus she's on is swept over a cliff along with her papers and clothes, and she's laughed at by her fellow survivors. It takes her a little time and experience to come to terms with her own privilege, her assumptions about culture, and her distorted view of poverty. But once Camille figures it all out, she opens herself up to finding love, and more importantly, to finding some inner peace. Hi, Jessica. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. I'm so happy to be here. So tell us how you came to write this book. Well, <laughs> in my head, I was I was a writer for years and years and years, and I never did anything about it. It was always a childhood dream to write a novel. I was always a bookworm. And so um, I talked about it, and my husband said, why don't you write? You said you wanted to write all these years, and I kept talking about it, and I never did anything about it, probably because of fear. Um, And then when my youngest daughter was uh, two and a half, she was diagnosed with leukemia, which was a life-changing event in our family. I have four children and um, everything kind of, you know, hit the dust. And I realized after she was done with her treatment, I realized that I wanted to be a writer and I was going to do it. And so I just sat down one day and started writing and I, I started a blog and, um, uh, just did all those kinds of things. And, and uh, eventually, one day I wrote a chapter. How long did it take you from start to finish? Probably about six years, if you can believe it. Now, this is writing a novel um, while teaching piano lessons every day. I have 40 piano students and raising a family and taking care of kids. And um, so I only had a couple hours every day to write. And so I would write in the mornings. And um, eventually, uh, you know, I got it done in about six years. <laughs> Right, right. Wow. At the very beginning of this book, 
when Camille's bus is clearly stuck in the mud and she starts getting scared. Why is she so shocked that the old woman with yellow teeth, who's a complete stranger, strokes her arm to to calm her down? Well, I believe it's, in my mind, it's because um, in our culture, in American culture, uh, oftentimes families are not real uh, affectionate or touchy-feely, and especially with someone you don't know. And she grew up in a in a kind of a loveless uh, family. It was just her and her mother. And, and she never got that kind of touch from her mother. So when this woman starts to stroke her, she's just, um, she just can't believe it. And yet it moves her. She almost wants to cry when it starts to happen. And there's a line in that chapter where she says she wants to crawl into the woman's lap and cry because she's never had that kind of touch, not even from her mother. Um, So right at the very first page, we realize we're um, in a precarious position. She's on a bus and it's a traveler's nightmare. I actually always have a fanny pack or something attached to me just in case (laughs) that happens. So when the bus goes over the cliff, it takes all of Camille's possessions. How uh, did you have that experience or where'd that come from? Okay. So I never had that bus experience where the bus went over the side of the cliff, but I was on that very bus. And it was the first time I was right after I married my husband and we went back to Oaxaca for our honeymoon. And here it was my very first time in Southern Mexico. Before I met my husband, um, Renee, I had never even heard of Oaxaca. Um, I didn't know there were indigenous people that uh, large amounts of indigenous people that lived there that spoke different languages. I had no idea. That's how ignorant I was. So here he brings this, his white bride to Oaxaca. And um, we take a bus up into the mountains where his village, where he grew up, it was his, his hometown. And so I was on that rickety bus and it was quite the experience. And it was so funny because he rode on top of the bus with the, with his other, with his other people in uh chickens. And, and it was just this, back then the road wasn't even paved. Now it's paved. It's a beautiful road. It's, uh, but back then it was a dirt road and it took us six, seven hours to get up to this village on a diesel bus. And for this, um, you know, American girl at age 20, what was I, 25, I had never had any, any experience like that. So I had a lot of details that I could describe about that. Luckily for me, the bus did not go over the side of the cliff. But it could have. There were no guardrails, yes. (laughs) So your character, Camille, goes to Mexico uh, to help her piano student. But it becomes clear that she's not being completely noble. No. The question is, if you're doing something good for someone else, is it still considered good if you get something out of it? Well, in this case, I think her original motives were to benefit herself. Okay. In her mind, she thought she was doing something good for her piano student. She wanted this piano student to have the opportunity to perform in this, uh, this concert that she had won a contest and she had, uh, it was going to be a big deal. So in her mind, she thought she was doing it for Graciela, but really she was doing it for herself because she lost out on the career that she was going to have because of the injury to her fingers. And so when she goes to Mexico in search of Graciela, that's, she thinks she's doing it for Graciela. But um, when she meets this man, Alejandro, who sort of schools her on various things, he even accuses her of just doing it for herself. And I think she starts to realize that. And through the novel, she goes through many changes where she all of a sudden starts to realize that she is being selfish and that, you know, she is needs to change the way she treats people. And she ends up making a big shift in the way she behaves and turns out to be quite generous in the end. 
Yeah, she's incensed, though, when all the other bus riders laugh at her. Does oh. she deserve their derision? Um, I think in a way she does, because she's had this incredibly privileged life. I mean, her family's wealthy. Her mother owns a home in Montecito in Santa Bar- near Santa Barbara, and is just super wealthy. And so she's had everything she always wanted. I mean, she's had pain and heartache. Bad things have happened to her, which you'll find out when you read the novel. But um, she pretty much gets whatever she wants. And so, um, yeah, she kind of does deserve it, I think. And so uh, I told it in the story because I wanted I wanted people to see that sometimes we take ourselves too seriously and we need to to stop doing that. <laughs> then Alejandro comes into the picture and, uh, you know, when a woman's beautiful and a man's described as good looking, one often assumes that a love story is in the cards. Uh, what kind of a person is he? He is a very good man. He is a kind and loving and helpful man, and he has high morals. And so um, at first he he irritates her because, you know, he calls her out on her privilege. He really does. He points things out to her that she is not used to having pointed out. And so, um, but after a while, she starts to realize that, you know, this is a really good, decent man and, and gosh, he's good looking too. And, you know, it's the typical, it's a typical romance storyline where the two characters don't care for each other at first. And then they, of course, fall for each other. Of course, it has more than that. It's more than just that. Um, The novel has many other facets to it. But um, I do love a good love story. And I love, I love romance. I really do. I love rom-com movies. And so, um, this was the story that came from my heart. Mm. So Alejandro, who really is a wonderful character, he warns Camille that she should be careful about her words or the other people around are going to assume she's just another white person who doesn't appreciate their culture. So can we talk a little bit about their culture and how Americans in particular, but people in general, make assumptions about their own culture being better than other people's. Oh, well, I think that's the biggest problem in America today is that uh, most American, white Americans believe that they are better than everybody else. And, and sort of that's what our country was built on, that we're, we're better, but we're not. And so this novel uh, reflects that, that she goes to this place in Mexico where she didn't even think about, think much about it. And, and she meets these people and she has assumptions that, you know, as many Americans have about uh, Mexican people and she is just blown away by how kind and generous and good these people are and how they treat her with uh, utmost respect. And I literally had that own experience when I went to Mexico for the first time. I never, ever will forget how lovely everyone was to me. In fact, one of the characters in the book, Tianifa, the one that, that starts touching Camille on the bus and, and being very kind to her, was um, modeled after my husband's aunt, who doesn't speak a word of Spanish. I've never had a conversation with her because she only speaks Zapotec dialect. And my husband always has to translate whenever I speak to her. But the first time I met her, she was so lovely to me and kind and made me feel welcome. And when I left Oaxaca for the first time after that trip, she cried. And I remember, I'll never forget that she stood there and cried big tears because I was leaving and she was so sad to see me go. And I just, I, that just changed the way I looked at the world. And so I wanted Camille to, uh, sort of have that experience too. So that's why I, I wrote that. Was there any disappointment in your own personal life when, for, in your husband's family and community that, that he brought home a, a white woman? Oh, no, never, not once. 
they never, you know, if they, if they ever thought anything, they never said anything. His mother was always welcoming and kind. And I never once uh, felt any kind of uh, worry that they didn't accept me completely. Now, on the other hand, my own mother, <laughs> my own mother <laughs> talked me out of marrying him. She said to me, well, you know, the cultural differences are so vast. I remember that sentence. The cultural differences are so vast. It's going to be very difficult. And I thought to myself, why is love is not difficult? And, um, you know, we, as all marriages do, we, we have our ups and downs, but, you know, we've been together over 33 years and I'm so thankful that um, I got this peek into a beautiful world that I would have not otherwise been able to see into. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. Mm. I was going to ask a, about a little more about Tia Nifa. Like, who, who is she and what is she in the story? Well, she's um, Alejandro's aunt, who he is like a mother figure to him. His mother has died. His parents have died and, and she she has no children of her own. And so um, he does everything for her. So he fixes up her house and he, you know, he they have a very close relationship so um, she's funny. She's she doesn't speak like I said. She doesn't speak any Spanish. Uh, she only speaks the Zapotec dialect. So Camille can't really communicate with her. But again, like I said, like I had with my own experience with my husband's aunt, um, they have this relationship that, and they and they love each other. And in the end, they just become very very close. And so she's kind of a character. She's funny. She's um, She's humorous. She she enjoys life to the fullest, and uh, I think that comes out. She's also very spiritual, and um, believes deeply in in uh, the, the things of the curandera, which is the healer. She believes in those kind of things, and she's very religious. She goes to to mass. She goes to church all the time, and um, as many of the the people in these towns are, they're very religious and believes deeply in uh, the saints and in the Virgin of Guadalupe, and so um, she's very complex and. I think that's important to know because I think that sometimes we we look at people a certain way and we make assumptions about them and we don't realize this how how much depth they have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. Um, could you talk a little bit about the um, the religious uh, the spirituality that also involved beyond church? It involved uh, eating and drinking things and other stuff. Well, okay. So there's so many beautiful um, components to my husband's culture. Now, he comes from a small village in the mountains of Oaxaca. The name of the town is Yalala, Via Hidalgo Yalala, and it's um, it's you know was probably that the first Spaniards came there, gosh, in the 1500s and built the church and converted everyone to Catholicism. But they still hold on to many of their traditions that go on, you know, back centuries and centuries. So you, they will burn copal, which is an incense in the church, which is very primitive. Uh, and they, you know, use that in, in religious uh, services and also uh, things that they do. Uh, there's a, a ritual they do called the cleansing, which t- I talk about in the book, where um, you, they 
try to draw the evil spirits out of a person by rubbing an egg on them and spraying, um, spraying mescal, taking a mouthful of mescal and spitting it on the person. And um, so it, it, I remember the first time I saw that happen, I thought that was very interesting. And um, so I put that in the book. And um, so Camille gets to experience all those things that I got to experience. But yeah, the religious component is very, very big there. And the whole thing about being lost in Oaxaca, the main idea of there's a saint, St. Anthony. And we have, many, many of us know who St. Anthony is. He is the patron saint of lost people. So when when she's there in this village, she starts to learn about St. Anthony and how much the people of, of the village uh, care for him and pray to him and try to do things to raise money to support his, you know, they have a big party on his, um, the day of his his death. And and so it's um it's quite involved and you know, I had no idea that that, that, that these people um, did these kinds of things. And so it was really eye-opening for me and for Camille, too. Yeah, um, I was, I'm not clear about the, what's the separation between religion and um, superstition? I, I, well, it was unclear. To me. It really, there really isn't much um, separation. I think they go hand in hand. You know, um, they, they do the traditional things in the church that the Catholic mass involves and all the, the praying and all that kind of stuff. But then they have these other things too, um, you know, cleansing, or they have things I didn't talk about in the book where they'll go and have a sweat, go to the sweat houses. And, and there's a lot, it's so ingrained. It's so ingrained. Everything's so meshed that um, it really works beautifully for the people. I, you know, they have the, the, the component of the organized religion, and then they have the, the things that go on that they've had for centuries. And so it, it really is meshed together. And then while Camille's there, there's a, a, a big celebration, a saint's St. Anthony celebration of some sort. And um, there's this funny scene where they're dressing up in all kinds of different costumes. And one of the things they do is dress up in costumes to make fun of their fellow villagers who've gone to the United States Mm -hmm. and become drug mules. Yeah. Well, um, okay. So (laughs) it's such a a thing on social commentary. It's so interesting. So there's a huge migration that took place probably starting in the 70s um, and 80s where uh, the economy in Mexico tanked and and there there were no jobs and people had to leave. So they came to the United States and started working and they developed um, this, this relationship where they raised money in like Los Angeles, where there's a huge community of yellow tacos, the people from this village, huge. And they have dances and parties and they raise money and they send it back to the town to make improvements on the town and all that kind of stuff. And um, so it's, it's very, very interesting that, that, that this culture that's so small from this small little village has been transplanted to Los Angeles and now other parts of the United States where it's just, it grows and their culture is so strong, which is another thing that is just fascinating to me that, that they do the same things in, in the United States that they would do back in this village. Exactly the same thing, the same. And so anyway, back to the dances. So they, they have these dances where they dress up, like they'll make fun of, of, of yellow tacos who've gone to Los Angeles. And then they come back, they start to act more Americanized. So they dress up as typical American tourists and they have a dance where they they tease them about that, or they they have the one uh, the dance of the gangsters, where they a lot of these families who have migrated to the United States have children in Los Angeles, and sometimes the kids get involved in gang culture. So here, the United States again is 
you know, giving part of our culture that is bad and ends up going back to Yalala, where they take the, you know, the drugs and the spray painting, the tagging and the smuggling and all that kind of stuff. And um, uh, takes that bad component back to this small little village. So it's it's very, very interesting. But I, I think the dances are such an interesting social commentary. They really are. There's a lot of action going on. So it takes a while for readers to realize that you're touching upon serious issues that confront Mexicans. Yes, absolutely. Not just Yalala. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. All, yeah. All uh, people who migrate from Mexico to the United States. I mean, um, we all know how that there are millions of undocumented um, people in this country who are part of the fabric of our own society, who do do things and help us, and we don't really give it much thought. Um, you know, they're, they're working and they're raising their families, and and we rely on them. And and there's a lot of rhetoric right now, a really sad rhetoric that that says you know they need to go back to Mexico, which I think is absolutely ridiculous. They're part of our country and um, offer so much, so much beauty. And we don't even realize how much they have given us because we don't think about it, you know? So yeah, that needs to be talked about. There's a, you know, all the stuff that's going on at the border these days and, and um, in our government, it's very disheartening and very sad. And um, yeah, while we're wrapped up in Camille's personal story, you slyly bring up the plight of undocumented people, especially yeah. The dreamers. Right. Does Camille start to understand the complexities of this situation? Um, and what do you think? What I, do you think, Jessica? I, is the United States is the United States going to do the right thing ultimately? Let's hope so. Come November, we'll see. Right. <laughs> yes, Graciela happens to be undocumented. Camille doesn't even know this. Camille doesn't even realize it's, it, it. That's just points out how oblivious she is to the problems um, of, of Mexican, of some Mexican people in this country. Here she is. She has this amazing student who is uh, so talented and has this, uh, you know, is about to launch her own career and she's undocumented and her own piano teacher doesn't even know it because she never really took the time to get to know this young girl on a deep level. And so that's another thing. Another eye-opening thing that Camille, go, Camille learns is that she needs to, care more about other people than just herself. And so um, after that, she really, she comes to that conclusion, the, their relationship changes and it becomes more beautiful and more open. Mm-hmm. Camille has kind of a tough upbringing. Her mother's like a caricature of a terrible mother, <laughs> although she also has a good side. But um, can you shed any light on Camille's profession? Sure. Well, I, of course, am a piano teacher. So I have that to draw upon. And I also um, was quite good. I, I wouldn't put, categorize myself as a prodigy as a young young child, but I was very, very good at piano. And I went to a very prestigious university and got a degree in music. And um, so I, and then I've taught all these years. And so I never really wanted that kind of life, but Camille did. Camille wanted a, a concert career and uh, she was, she could have had it, but for the uh, injury to her fingers, which I won't tell you about because um, people have to read the novel to find out what happened to her fingers. But um, I chose a different path, which I'm happy about. But um, so Camille had for many years, um, very unhappy as a piano teacher. You know, she did that because she couldn't do anything else. And um, so she finally gets this student, Graciela, and it sort of changes everything for her. And she's so excited. She thinks she's finally going to get the recognition she deserves. And then, of course, Graciela disappears and goes back to, to Oaxaca and Camille has to go after her, which is the whole point. She Camille realizes in the end, maybe what she thought she wanted wasn't really what she wanted, you know, and and so it was a big life lesson for her. Mm-hmm. Another 
tricky thing you bring up. Another really difficult, complex subjects. That, that um, uh, okay, the issue of people who have nothing compared with those who have a lot. Do Do you think everyone who reads your novel will get that? Probably not. Um, I think some open-minded people might, um, but there are a lot of people that that don't don't. It makes them so uncomfortable to think about that that they don't. They don't want to acknowledge it. But yeah, there is a lot of haves and have-nots. I'm a have. I My whole life I was a have. And my husband, on the other hand, was a have-not. I mean, his experience, his experience growing up was so far beyond what I have could have ever imagined. I mean, he literally grew up in with a dirt floor, one-room house made out of corrugated aluminum um, until he came to this country at 19 and started sending money back home to build them a proper house, which they have now. Um, he he did that, and and he also went to college, and he got a master's degree, and he speaks three languages. I mean, that's that's really who I based Alejandro on because um, I'm so in awe of my husband and his achievements that um, I wanted to show show the world that there that there are people out there that that do these incredible things that we don't even think about. You know, it's so much easier for me to go to college, but for him to go to college um, in, you know, in his third language, you know, his first language was Zapotec, second language, Spanish, and then third language, English. And he didn't learn English till he was, you know, eight, 19 years old. It's pretty amazing. So, yeah. Just out of curiosity, did do your children speak the three languages as well? No, they don't speak Zapotec, but they speak you know, Spanish and, of course, English. Yeah, so they do. They're oh. bilingual. But no, Zapotec is not a written language. And so unless you're immersed in it and hear it, you know, every day and, um, you know, they understand a few words here and there just like I do. But it's um, it's not written down. It's all phonetic and passed, mm-hmm. down, passed down through mm-hmm. the generations. It's a beautiful, beautiful language, really beautiful language. So, Jessica, what are you working on next? So I am working on, I probably will, it's just in the very early stages, another novel about um, a woman who um, somehow, I'm not going to tell the whole story because you have to keep, I don't want to get any spoilers, but somehow she becomes um, friends with a transgender um, girl. And uh, so it's, it's, I'm I'm not going to say more about that, but it's a relationship and and this woman has uh, history and past about that and then I won't tell about but um, I think that's something that really needs to be talked about. You're probably going to sneak up on us with all kinds of really heavy-handed important <laughs> subjects but we won't know what hit us because we'll be immersed in the story. Well, I think that's, that's the way to get the point across <laughs> isn't it? That's it is. No, not <laughs> Thank you so much it's been a pleasure talking to you. And a pleasure too. Thank you for having me I really appreciate it. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Jessica Winters Mireles, author of Lost in Oaxaca. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Book Network's listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle's an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creativity community. As NBN listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do forward slash NBN forward slash join.